Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. How are you doing, brother? I'm well. How are you, sir? I'm good. Good to be back at the Cottage Studios in Independence, Missouri, and hopefully we are here to talk about things of the kingdom, eternity, and all of those things that just get my blood going on a <laughs> cold Saturday morning. So I'm excited to just see where conversation takes us. What's yeah. uh, You got anything special on your mind? So just so our listeners know, Corey and I have gotten into the habit. We get together, and boom, we hit record, and we just start going, and we thought that by not even talking prior that that would just capture more of the real essence. So we are actually, when I say we're live, you don't hear this live, but we record it live and we don't really do much editing afterwards other than this and that. So Corey, I don't even know what you're going to say, but what's on your mind? What do you got for <laughs> us? What do you think? What have you been thinking about? I've been thinking about the fact that again, the, the book of Mormon has become this new book to me. And if someone had asked me, Oh, 20 or 30 years ago, um, what what the purpose of the book or what the message of the Book of Mormon is, um, my answer may have been different then than it is now. And I I think it's just growing in appreciation for the simple messages, but the the purpose and the purpose. Um, I've been thinking about this title page of the Book of Mormon. I've been thinking about how, um, you know, it's this thing you kind of skip over to get to First Nephi. But there's a couple words in here that that have just spoken to me recently and uh, realizing that the message of this book was to three people, and we're one of them. I, I used to think that this was our book. You know, Mike, the church was restored, and the Book of Mormon plates were found in the ground, and everything kind of went rapidly, you know, into the, the church and the, the growth of the church and the and this thought of Zion and everything. But um, the Book of Mormon didn't come just to us for us. That's probably the, one of the first things I've realized is that it's not even just another testament of Jesus, which is what some people like to call it. It was supposed to be the testimony of Jesus. This was supposed to be a standard to us. And, and it's that that's made me just say, wow, what is it that's the standard? What is what is the question that we're supposed to be uh, uh, understanding or the answer, rather, to the question that we're supposed to be understanding by it being a standard? When you say standard, Corey, um, we say that frequently, but that really is, there's a scripture in a couple places. Do you want to share those or do you have them pulled up well, so, that you're referencing? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, the word standard was uh, an Old Testament word that um, may have even had a little different meaning than in our day. You know, when when you work, uh, if you work in chemistry in a lab, they talk about having a standard, you know, some chemical that the the compound, for instance, has been tested, and you know this is exactly, you know, 48% whatever. It's it's the standard. But a standard like, works in, in a lot of ways by that definition in our world. It's something that you can measure against. But in the Old Testament... The word standard also talked about the, the flag or the banner that led the armies. It was it was when they talk about lifting up a standard, they were like raising the flag, showing, okay, these are the Israelites. They are marching behind this flag. This represents them, you know, and this this was the thing that um pointed their focus, right? That that standard, that there was uh, someone called the title bearer. The title was the, 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 this was the guy who carries the flag. You know, it was his job just to hold this up so everyone could see that was what they were fighting towards or for. And, and it, it represented everything they believed. It represented everything that their purpose, their objectives were centered on. That's it. Yeah. And I, I can picture now movies where the flag falls down and it's like the number one objective is for someone to go pick up that flag and continue to carry that at the forefront of the battle. Like that was as important as anything. Like It, it was, you know, like, Iwo Jima, yeah. you, you know, it, exactly. It's like, don't let the flag touch the ground. I remember when I was in, in scouts growing up, I mean, it's like, you know, we would retire flags, you know, that had been worn out, but it was done with such respect. You know, they were, they were actually burned and everything in a 
respectful way. People would stay in a rigid salute during this process because they had so much reverence for the flag. But, you know, the, the flag wasn't just a piece of cloth. The the flag w- represented, you know, like you look at the stars and stripes of our country if you're in the United States listening to this, and, and it it's the thing that you you hold up and it represents you know your your beliefs your faith your religion your your country your history your values your people your culture everything yeah. your by mission just, yeah your mission is mm-hmm. it's all represented by that and in fact if you if you look on the the shoulder of a, of a soldier, they'll have the flag on there, and it and it's going in a direction where you wouldn't realize it's it's backwards on their shoulder. But the reason is because they they want to remember that the flag doesn't retreat; the flag goes forward. So the, in the direction oh, wow. the shoulders facing, the the, the sh- it moves forward, right? And so, but the the standard in the olden days, like the Old Testament times, had. Is much or even more symbolism, because in in the day that's just what it was. You know, like you say, the 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 go pick the flag back up. Um, the the flag was the thing that was always hoisted. You know, above a castle when someone conquered it. When when they that showed who owned it. Now, well, that's the attitude I think that this brings when we consider this scripture from the second book of Nephi. Uh, in, in the earliest version, it's second Nephi 12, uh, 44. Um, God talks about how his word would hiss forth to the ends of the earth for a standard to his people, which are the house of Israel. And, and what word is that? This is the word that the Nephites wrote. And so one of my things that I've, and like I said, if you would have asked me, 20 or 30 years ago, you know, well, the Book of Mormon it talks about Jesus. It, it, it's, you know, kind of to be with the Bible and the Doctrine and Covenants. And it's kind of just like this, uh, another message of it, another proof. I, I realized, I think I had that wrong. God gave this book to us as a gift to the Gentile nation so it could be a standard. So there wouldn't be any issues. So we would know. And this was the thing we were to rally behind. Let me, uh, let me, Corey, for the benefit of our listeners, let me read the three verses before that, just so you right. understand that it is talking about the Book of Mormon specifically. Um, there shall be many at that day when I shall proceed to do a marvelous work among them, that I may remember my covenants, which I have made unto the children of men, that I may set my hand again the second time to recover my people, which are the house of Israel, and also that I may remember the promises which I have made unto thee, Nephi, and also unto thy father, that I would remember your seed, and that the words of your seed should proceed forth out of my mouth unto your seed, and my words shall hiss forth unto the ends of the earth for a standard unto my people, which are of the house of Israel. So that's the background right there. Um, You know, you see these writings. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this to me was huge. That's second Nephi 29, by the way, if you're Mm -hmm. uh, using LDS, it's kind of cool. Just a side note in the book of Mormon, as compared to the Bible, there's this great story of, of this man who just takes his cloak and he rends it, tears it. And he calls this, and he writes upon it, and he calls it this title of liberty. You're talking about like this homemade flag that this this guy makes, and he says uh, he caused this title of liberty to be hoisted upon every tower which was in the land, which was possessed by the Nephites. And thus Moroni planted the standard of liberty among the Nephites, and the remainder of those dissenters, rather to be smote down to the earth by the sword, yielded to the standard of liberty and were compelled to hoist the title of liberty upon their towers and in their cities and to take up arms in defense of their country. Now, I was reading from uh, Alma 21 and chapter 23, various verses, so they're not all together. But there's another uh, picture in the Book of Mormon, which you don't really get in the Bible, of like this standard where they're actually ripping his coat, and he writes these words on there about being free and for the freedom of their children and their families that they will not give in, you know, and then they they rally behind this title of liberty, and he puts it on this. That's Isn't that amazing? It is. And then you're comparing that to this book, 
which is going to free in a spiritual way this freedom of uh, for the Jews. And, the, and, and it's a standard, but in a spiritual way, the words of God, amazing. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You know, our, our friend Dave, I think uh, sometime back I heard a sermon he shared, and he, he mentioned something that's beautiful about that story you just uh, discussed about Moroni, the, Captain Moroni. When he comes forth, he had already been at battle, but he goes and he puts his his armor on. I mean, he puts his military outfit on, even though he's not fighting or engaged at that time. But when he hoists this title of liberty, he's in his military uniform, if you will, of whatever that was of the day, as he does this to to present the seriousness of this, that, okay, we've been fighting with our swords and stuff, but now we're going to, this is the standard that we're fighting behind. And he, he, he looks the part, he, he acts the part because he is the part, and he realizes it's these values that represent everything we believe in, everything we're willing to live for, everything that we're willing to die for. It's those values. Yeah, the actual words that he wrote on this coat that he, that he tore, his own coat, he tore it and he wrote on it, in memory of our God, our religion, and freedom, and our peace, our wives, and our children. And he fastened it upon the end of a pole thereof. And you're right, he fastened on his headplate, his breastplate, and his shields, and girded on his armor about his loins, and he took the pole which he had on the end thereof, his rent coat, and he called it the title of liberty. And you know what he did after that? It was kind of cool. We're kind of, he bowed himself to the earth and prayed mightily unto his God for the blessings of liberty to rest upon his brethren as long as there should be a band of Christians that remain to possess the land. Yes. That is a promise for us to behold and hang on to. So, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Uh, no, got no. You off a little bit, but no, uh, you didn't at all. That's the point. That's the point is that it's with that valor and, and that dedication that God wanted this word to be hoisted by the Gentiles who received it. And, and here, I, I, it might just be me. Maybe, maybe I'm off in my perception but we, we missed something. You know, you had a sister on recently who shared her testimony and in coming out of the Amish community and how, um, you know, the life was then and life had changed and she found the restoration and the, and the beautiful things that happened in their life from that. But then she also said, you know, she lamented that in all that we kind of missed the message of Jesus in that. Uh, right. And, and it became this, this other message. Well, not another message, but sometimes we the focus we move, yeah the focus and so so here in in the same way I I sort of see that we may have lost the focus in that there's there's a brand if you will of of church that we become and and it sometimes it's it's divided sometimes it's it's argumenting arguing over uh, or argumentative rather over over minutia of doctrine. And, you know, and here we've got our leader of our army, Jesus, who says, hey, you know, my my will is not that you argue and bicker and contend over doctrine, but that's the things that we've divided over in many situations, losing the objective of Jesus and, and fighting on these little side battles. And so I, I feel like this whole message of the Book of Mormon was a greater message that got lost for promoting our brand or promoting our people. I'm convinced that the Book of Mormon goes back to Israel, just like you you shared those earlier verses, that when it goes back to them, it goes back as the pure word that it is, not through the filter of our brand of what we've turned it into, if that makes sense. You know, there's a lot of weird things, and I'm not going to go in any one direction because I really don't want to offend anyone who's our a listener, if they're holding on to something specifically, but there's there's a, there's a lot of things that we've turned into doctrine that just aren't in the Book of Mormon at all, you know, and and there's things that uh, I think we've overcomplicated our approach to Jesus uh, that have made it seem like that becomes the religion of people, you know. If you take something like oh, if someone's drinking coffee or not, you know, I can remember years ago feeling like. You know, if I saw someone who was from church and they had a can of Coke in their hand, I, I really questioned whether they believed in Jesus or not. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's just kind of how I was conditioned, and and I, and I'm not I'm not making light of that. You know, I'm not trying to say it doesn't matter what you eat or drink. I mean, that does, but for some, 
that became religion. That became you know their focus, and they couldn't see beyond that. And Jesus is saying those are the things that we're not supposed to be divided over, but yet those are the things that somehow for us, when we feel like we're arriving at spirituality, those become the key players versus mm-hmm. the, the the greater message of the change of heart. But so this book, this book has uh, some pure, pure messages in it. One of them is, you know, who is Jesus? And we talked about this in a in a recent uh, episode too. We shared several scriptures that the Book of Mormon amplifies who Jesus is according to the book versus, uh, you know, in in the Bible, and realizing the God of the Old Testament is Jesus in the flesh, and his body is the body of a spirit. This is all from the Book of Mormon. And what I'm excited about is when I hear testimonies of people in Israel, for instance, who are coming to Jesus. They're coming to this revelation of who he is, that he was the God who led them through the wilderness and by a flaming fire at night and under a cloud by day. That was the same God, the perfect God, who came down and became sacrificed for them. And and yet, we we wrangle over these things. We we divide over these things as the Gentile church. And I realize, no people who are coming to Christ, they're they're far beyond that. They're not struggling with these things, and we have to understand what the the message of the Book of Mormon was as our title, as our and make that what we present because that's what God wants to return to them too. So don't be the don't be the greatest hindrance to the. Israelites or the house of Israel coming back to um, Jesus, as you quoted uh, a couple episodes ago, the rabbi who said the greatest, uh, the greatest um, barrier for the Jews understanding Jesus is the Christian church. We don't want to be a barrier. No. And the book of Mormon, when presented in its plainness as its purpose uh, is going to be a great help in helping them see the, uh, and it's interesting, um, you know, if the Book of Mormon, if that's, that's if it's that is its purpose, the Gentile Christian Church has by and large rejected the main uh, tool that is supposed to be used in bringing the house of Israel to a knowledge of Jesus as the Christ. Exactly. And so that's why the time of the Gentiles has to come to uh, an end so that it can go back because it has rejected the fullness of the gospel. And whether it's rejecting the actual book as the Book of Mormon, which many Christians do and continue to do, we are rejecting, whether they know it or not, the principles contained therein the Book of Mormon. And so the nation as a whole, the United States and other Gentile nations, are becoming wicked and corrupt. And whether they believe it or not, they are repeating patterns that are contained throughout the Book of Mormon in the fullness of the the gospel, uh, specifically on this continent, on this land, we are told you will not be a part of this land and um, deny your your God and your creator. And when you do, like it says, if there's still a band of Christians left in this land that are following him, then there are promises. But uh, if we as a country reject him, there's going to be a purging and a pruning. Right. You know, I, I, I'm going to just say this is what I think, but I, I believe this is what the scriptures are teaching too, is that the Book of Mormon was supposed to be the standard, just like that title of liberty, just like the flag, just that we held up when we received it to the Gentiles, but we didn't. The Gentiles are prophesied to reject it. It's not that the Jews were like favored or a better people or whatever. The reason the Jews are mentioned, and you know, they're only zero point two percent of the world's population, and the reason, but the reason they and the scattered house of Israel are mentioned as part of these covenants is because when this word returns to them, the prophecy is that they do hold it up as the standard. And here's here it's almost like the question, which group of people in the world when I bring these these plates back, this pure word of God will hold it up to the to be their standard. So far, no one's really done it yet in a way that we we hold it as the standard. We hold it as a book and sometimes we just kind of put it on the shelf. But the things it it it, it it hurts my soul when I realize the things that we argue about in our congregations, you know, like we talked about an episode or two back about, oh, well, can only elders serve communion or this and that and the other. None of that stuff is in the Book of Mormon, and none of that comes from there. <clears throat> There's a lot of doctrinal things, and I'm not going to pick on people in the LDS church, but there are things that make it hard to present the Book of Mormon when you talk about 
Adam-God theory. Well, none of that is in the Book of Mormon. Or you talk about having to have a celestial marriage. That's not in the Book of Mormon. Or you talk about secret temple things. None of that's in the Book of Mormon either. And But but I've realized those are the things that get associated with the Book of Mormon when, when people argue over those things. When you come back to the pure message, I've realized we've clouded it. And this is why the scriptures make sense now to me that what it says, Jesus, not it, what Jesus says is that, hey, when the Gentiles sin against and reject my gospel, that's when I bring it back to the house of Israel. They're going to hold it up for a standard. They're going to realize what it is. One of the other things that that we've shifted, not that it's wrong, but shifted our focus was convincing the world, or we thought we had to prove to everybody that the Book of Mormon was a legitimate book. And we need to always back up and look at the bigger picture. And it's not, it's not about just getting people to realize this is this book came from God. It's it's the principles, and as we say, it tells us how to come to Christ right. within it. And so the message is teaching people how to come to Christ, not just that is, and that's one of those very small um, movements where your focus slants just enough to get you completely off course. <laughs> and we become our whole work is to prove the Book of Mormon is real, prove it's the Word of God. No, the whole work. The whole purpose is to come to Christ, and it shows it tells us how to come to Christ, and it's going to help the house of Israel come to Christ, right? Whatever, and we could spend many shows on what that means to come to Christ because that's a whole nother topic. But the Book of Mormon teaches that, especially for them, what you know, that's going to mean. And I think we we have to touch on those to be fair because we need to be about what the purpose of the Book of Mormon was, not just saying, "Hey, it has a purpose too," you know. So along with what you just said is this same idea that we felt like the idea was we had to prove to the world that the church was restored and that we were it and that we kind of continue to go in that cycle trying to prove that what happened to the Gentiles is the light and light to the world, life and light. But this this idea is that he was the life and light and mm. truth that we were supposed to be holding up. And that this book told how to come to him. But all of a sudden, it's like we made the story about us and, and trying to prove who we are and prove that we're right and prove this and that. And, you know, uh, I, I love reading Nephi's words because he keeps us at this overview level where he's describing play by play things are going to happen in the future. He states the Book of Mormon comes to the Gentiles. It returns to the house of Israel from them, and that's when things flourish. But we're in this point where the Book of Mormon came to the Gentiles, and we just kind of think it's all about us, and now we take the ball and run with it. And it's like, no, there's still a couple pass plays where we got to pass it off. You know, We thought we were the ones who were supposed to score the touchdown, right? And it's like, okay, we have to advance the ball, and then someone on our team who takes it and runs it into the end zone, according to what the Scriptures say. Um. I love your football analogies, by the way. <laughs> That's really good. That's why I thought, and we had talked about, and we've been talking about um, just doing a series that we, could go on for a long time, doesn't matter, on what does the Book of Mormon teach, because that is such an important thing. It's not, you know, how do I convince people the Book of Mormon is real? How do I go tell the Baptist and argue them theologically that it's real? How do I prove from the Bible that it's prophesied that it's real? None of that. But how do I understand what it teaches, and how does that improve my relationship with Christ, and how does that prepare me to then uh, help other people come to Christ by the exactly. instruction manual that I'm using, which happens to be the Book of Mormon, and that has been prophesied that this is the instruction manual that will work and that will be used to do this. But that's the focus, right. coming to Christ and then helping others come to Christ, specifically House of Israel, the Jews, the Lamanites, and the Gentiles. Right. No one's left out. But so, yeah, so that's where we get to what does the Book of Mormon teach. I don't know if that's where you were no, going today it, or it not. Told, but, it, um, well, you know, this is maybe a, a, a preface to that because – it's important that we realize that, you know, it's not like the house of Israel or the Jews were, were better or, or more favored by God. The, the, again, to repeat, it's just that the prophecy says that when this word returns to them, that's when, that's when the arm of God is revealed. That's when the kings shut their mouths at what they will see, according to what the Book of Mormon says. And in his 
power in going back and regathering the world. You know, Jeremiah 23 says, hey, they're no more going to talk about how God gathered them out of uh, Egypt, but how he gathered them out of the the four quarters of the earth and the north countries and the isles of the sea to, to Zion. There's there's so much ahead. And so my my feeling is it's important that we do look at what is what are the doctrinal messages of the Book of Mormon and and why was this given to us? Well one, so that it would put the arguments to rest. It would put the the contentions to rest. Not that we haven't done a good job of continuing to contend, but again it it was supposed to become the standard. And and so when I first look around and I realize now, and, and like I said, 20 or 30 years ago, I, I probably wouldn't have said this or understood it, but I've realized that the very first clear message of what the Book of Mormon teaches is who, who God is and that it was God the creator who came down to, to the world. Now, some people will take issue right there because they, they're kind of taught, oh, you got to be up in arms because you can find scriptures that say it another way. Well, you can find scriptures that say things another way, but remember what book was supposed to be the standard and what book, what did it say? That's, that's where I'm coming back to with almost everything. Right. And I, we covered that pretty extensively in a past episode, but it, it's kind of like we talked about last time or the time before uh, where, I, where I met that brother in, um, in a store and he was talking to me about coming to, you know, whether or not hell is, is a rig, is an actual fire or not. Well, there are scriptures that, that say, different things. We can never, we're so quick to just write off the scriptures that we don't want to, um, it doesn't, doesn't, uh, build up our philosophy. We can't, you have to look at all of the scriptures and, and it's okay to ask questions because it's like, God, why did you say two things? I mean, that's God's doing, not ours to, mm-hmm. to some extent. Sometimes maybe man gets in there and muddles it up, but just, at least always get to that point where, yes, we, we admit it's portrayed in different ways. And when we start asking those questions, then we get, um, then you get movement. you get, you get the Holy spirit working in your mind and allowing insights to come and hopefully arriving at the truth. But, um, just because you believe God, you know, that Christ is God, it says he's God, the eternal father. He came down here and was called Christ because he took on flesh and blood that doesn't mean you have to understand how that all happens, um, the intricacies of that, and how how did God do that, and how did he divide himself? How is he the father, and yet in flesh and blood and being the son? That's where we end up fighting, and, and yeah. because we're talking about things that have, as, as another brother said recently, there is no precedent for this. Yeah, and we right. try to use things like, well, you see, it's like water. You know, it's frozen, and then it's in a gas form, and it's in a liquid form, and that's what God is. It's like, it's bigger than that. There is no precedent. There's no analogy that we're going to make yes. using the creation to an, to, as an analogy to define the creator. <laughs> wow. And so it's like, but just... Just look at the scriptures and see that it is mentioned both ways in our for our edification. Yeah, and in our simple little minds, we are probably not all going to arrive at understanding that the same way. But take the words for what they say and exercise faith in that. There is no, there is no um, debating what the Book of Mormon teaches or what it says. And so, to me, it's that becomes the the reason why it's important is. You know, I realize for some people, even what you just said, and I love what you just said, it's still not going to answer the question in their minds. But for me, this is what it's done. When I realized that it wasn't just a surrogate, it was God, the creator himself, who had to make the sacrifice. It just made me begin in my finite mind to realize the magnitude of my sin and and this and the magnitude of how big a sacrifice it took for me. It wasn't just like anyone could do it. No, he the one who made me was the only one who could do it. And that just makes me think, oh, I am so insignificant. And and he who was infinite did that. I mean, that's that's that changed my life just to realize that right there. And so to me, that's what that is the primary message of the Book of Mormon that we have failed to hold up to the world. We 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 argue about it, we say God is whoever you want to say it is. If you want to say it's this way, that's fine. If you want to say that's always fine. And and you know what? 
honestly, I don't take issue with that at all because, and it's not like I feel somehow like superior, like I've got a secret. No, God, God brings us to truth and understanding in his own way. Everyone does. And I'm not just saying either, okay, well someday, you know, everyone else catches up or whatever. No, 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 that's, that's not it at all. But the point is that we as a church have allowed ourselves to um, be, I don't know, to, to, to not do what the Book of Mormon says, to hold it as the standard to where we become wishy-washy in our definitions. We need a firm definition of who God is to hold him up to the world because the problem is the other people who are coming to Christ who haven't had him for a thousand years, they're already getting it. They already they already understand that, and they're seeing that. Um, and it's, it's like, you know, like one of the next objectives of the Book of Mormon was in the old days to teach people uh, that all their sacrifices pointed towards the Messiah, pointed towards this final sacrifice. They're getting that too. Half of the New Testament is Paul explaining this to Jews, Christian Jews now who who didn't get that the lambs and the sacrifices were all just a type and shadow. The people of the Book of Mormon understood that. Jews of today, unlike anyone else, no one understands it more than anyone who came from a Jewish culture, that without shedding of blood, there was not forgiveness of sin. They realized that the creator was the one who shed his blood for us, for our forgiveness. That's, that's message number two, you know, that, that the creator came down, his blood had to be shed. But, but from there, it just, it continues in these, these covenants and these promises what, what's amazing to me is that the word is so clear, and God says, Jesus said, whoever declares more or less than this, you know, is not sharing my gospel, is not sharing my doctrine. And I think of all the things we advertise, all, like you said, all the things we try to prove, all the different things that we try to, to, to make the issue, and it's like they're not the things that Jesus told us to prove. They're the things that we decided are important. You know, it's like Jesus gave us this list of stuff, put it on a sticky note on the fridge. He said, do A, B, and C while I'm out. And then, you know, we see the sticky note and decide to do C, D, and F instead. And and it's like, no, these are the things he wanted us to declare to the world. Instead, we declare, we promote our own agendas. Do you know, um, I was thinking as you were talking and also, a while back, we were talking about the Jews today and how only 20% of them believe in hell. And then we listened to that, um, that um, very intelligent Jew who became a Christian in college, and we played his testimony. He didn't even realize that he had sin, and he said it's not something that's taught in their church, sin. Now, think about the Book of Mormon as I see these things that I've grown up learning and I'm always looking at them from my Christian viewpoint and I'm like, well, that's kind of neat. That's, that's some added information on that. But now think of a Jew who doesn't know about sin or certainly doesn't believe they're a sinner who maybe doesn't even believe in hell. Now think about everything in the Book of Mormon you've read. Remember where it says very specifically um, Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. Right. And there is such dialogue and it's so logically and chiastically set out about how man falls, how there has to be an opposition. And it goes on to, uh, to explain in a great way what that opposition is and how that becomes sin by stepping outside of God. And then at the very end it says, and if this isn't, you know, if these things aren't, then God is not. And it just logically explains it. So, so there's another thing in the Book of Mormon that um, just very beautifully to us, we think, well, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, more understanding. And uh, but to people that don't understand, there's a hell or there's even sin. You read that, that's got to be mind blowing. Like, whoa, whoa. I mean, I don't know. I would think so. Anyway, I mean, that's a different culture. Yeah, that's that's a really cool insight, Mike. That that really is. Yeah, it's profound on so many levels what you just said because again, we we don't appreciate the fact that in in that culture it's the same thing we're doing though. It was almost as if they were just taught you're the special people, you're the chosen people, so you're enough. So it was never about their sin, right? And in our day, it's almost evolved into the same thing. It's it's really it's not that our sin is discussed. We're told, okay, well, you you want to make celestial, so don't sin. But it's like it's more about it's just a good thing you found the church, and this is our church, and now you're in the right church. And so 
the the whole thing i never i you know even though i i i guess i never realized so much of the fact that it it wasn't just that i had to find the church so i could be with god again i had to have my sin washed away and that for jews for instance who are really not taught that <clears throat> they're carrying sin it's just more that sin existed, but that sin was a personal thing that had to be removed individually for us. That is a revelation. And what you just pointed out is so interesting that they would read those words and for the first time and think, wow, I had sin that had to be washed away. Yeah. And, and in the Book of Mormon, there's so much in the Old Testament of the Book of Mormon before Christ even makes an appearance on the earth. There is so much about Christ being, you know, there's no doubt about it. And, and that how all of these sacrifices they're doing points to Christ and how he's going to come down and be the last sacrifice and atone for their sin. That's all before he even comes. And that's just not in, in the Bible. And we've talked about that different audience, but so now, you know, the Jews are, are some of them are coming to read the Bible and you said, you know, it's hard for them to even get a new Testament over there, but as they begin to read the Bible and I, I know Isaiah 53, okay, here's a whole nother thing to oh go into. Gosh. Yeah. they, you you can speak to this no, better than ahead. I can. Just that Isaiah fifty three. You know, when when I was a young boy and I was reading the Book of Mormon, boy, when I got to the Isaiah stuff, it was like, you know, turn the pages as quick as I could. When's he going to be done with Isaiah? And why is he putting all this Old Testament stuff in here? It's way too complicated for. <laughs> Same here. So I try to get back to the parts where they storyline, yeah, right. or where they explain what I've just read, right? But for the Jews. Isaiah 53 was uh, a very important uh, scripture, right? And wasn't it, um, they try to change the meaning? They, or they, not? Altered, they altered meanings. They even removed some of the, they removed half of the text from some of the Hebrew uh, renditions of scripture for over a thousand years, just because it was too hard to explain. Yeah, and, so and the so people now, in the dark. Yeah, so now this standard that's going to come back to him quotes so much of Isaiah, but not only quotes it, puts it into context and explains what it's talking about. When you combine that with them now understanding, I mean, they're just, it's just like the time is just right. It's, for, it's for, so right. For the, uh, well, it's, it's always been right. so yeah, arrogant. Yeah, for, yeah like we have me. control of, right. Or, or like God's like, you don't know what my time period is. But for my <laughs> silly little, so... From my simple mind, it's like, yeah, we finally understand something, so we think the time's right. Yeah, yeah, God's yeah. understood this from the beginning, right? But I don't know what his timing is, or if it's. But certainly, there is room. Um, there is room to move and to bring the book to them, as it always has been. But it, we see these things as, I think, just more. Uh, the ground is being prepped. It's very fertile soil more and more to plant the seeds. Yeah. And, and, and you know, Isaiah 53, uh, to, to just throw that chapter and verse out, assuming there's this uh, common knowledge, you know, if I share a couple verses, yeah. just it's it's the one that talks about he was wounded for our transgressions by his stripes we are healed. You know yeah. the iniquity of us Bruised. all was upon him, right? So that's that's Isaiah fifty three. What's interesting is, and I know in our last episode we talked some about Abinadi, how he comes to this wicked group of people. He quotes he quotes Isaiah fifty three to these people. And it's for that reason they killed him because mm. he said, doesn't even this tell us that God himself will come down among the children of men? And it's such a beautiful thing when I've realized what's happening right now in Israel is that people are reading Isaiah 53 and they're saying this had to be Jesus. This was him. He was the Messiah. And this is like new information to them. And I'm looking at them. I'm like, I can't wait for them to get this book because I'm like, no, we've known this all along and I apologize. It's taken us 200 years to get it to you. But this book tells you the things you are learning and it comes in even a purer form where where you can't be mistaken, you can't deny, you can't miss the plain truth, and it's right here. Don't get it even through the Gentile church or through the church that came through Catholicism. Get it from the words of your people who was buried in our soil for, for a thousand years. Yeah, right? Get it and read it here. This will tell you who that Messiah is. Yeah, I love that a couple uh, episodes ago when you brought to the forefront something I had never thought about, like we are occupying 
this land. We are occupiers. We never, we don't look as America as occupiers. We look at to us as the country that goes out and frees people from having occupation where people come in and take away their freedom and everything. But, but we are occupying this land. This, there was a people here before us that had many promises and covenants given to them about this land. And we just read today, you know, as long as there's a band of Christians upon this land, then certain promises apply, but but um, anyway. Well, you know, you just talked about those Gentiles, and this is uh, the the a couple of verses before the ones you read out of Second Nephi twelve. Uh, we read around forty two, forty three, forty four. But starting at verse forty in the RLDS version, this is Second Nephi twelve verse forty. Or if you're in the LDS, you can use the handy dandy cross reference at Restored Gospel now and get this at any time you want. Second uh, Nephi twelve forty is Second Nephi twenty eight thirty two in the LDS. But it says, uh, talk about the people who occupy this land. Woe be unto the Gentiles. And Gentiles is a code word for us, all right? Our nation, our people, and not just our nation, but Gentiles of the world, to whom this was supposed to be the standard. So what does he say? Woe be to the Gentiles, saith the Lord of hosts, for notwithstanding, I shall lengthen out mine arm unto them from day to day, they will deny me. Okay, so... All of a sudden, God's saying the same problem with the Gentiles is the same problem with Israel. God lengthened his arm out to them day by day by day, and they just deny him anyhow. Well, now God said, and okay, so I'm going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and it's not even just the gospel. Here's the fullness of pure record. Hasn't been adulterated by man. Here it comes to you. And then he says, and woe be to you, because now even though I'm going to stretch my arm to you every day, you're also going to deny me. That's that's how this whole passage of the standard begins because the problem is the Gentiles were supposed to use this for a standard and we didn't. We kind of put it on the shelf. Now we deny him. But he says, nevertheless, I will be merciful unto them, us Gentiles, if they will repent and come unto me, for my arm is lengthened out all the day long, saith the Lord of hosts. What a, what a cool promise. But he said, but there's going to be many at that day when I proceed to do this marvelous work that I can remember the covenants that I've made. And this is what you shared, Mike, that I could set my hand again the second time to recover my people, which are of the house of Israel. That second time is the time that we are approaching. And this is this is an important thing to understand in the evolution of, of prophecy the second time we kind of assumed it was when Joseph Smith received the books, the book, the plates, rather. Yeah, it is. I mean, that began it. But the true second time is when Jesus is in charge and the gospel has returned to the house of Israel. And then he magnifies himself to them in power and spiritual power into the world. These are beautiful things that are going to happen so that he can remember these covenants that he's made with Nephi and his forefathers. This is this is what's about to unfold. And again, this is one of the messages of the Book of Mormon too, that we have somehow focused the work on ourselves. You know, we we've told the story about Zion, for instance, saying, well, we the church was restored so we can build Zion. Well, the church was restored was restored and Zion is going to be built, but there's a lot of things that happen in between. And the main thing is that we never taught that the gospel had to go back to Israel first before that happens. So the gospel comes to the house of Israel. They reject it, goes to the G- to the Gentiles for a while. We re- reject it. <laughs> and then he sets his hand a second time to recover his people and goes back to the house of Israel. Yeah. That's yeah. a very wide synopsis. But within that story is the story of all mankind. Yeah. yeah, And, and that's the story we never really even told ourselves. We kind of knew it was there, but, but we didn't ever look at those pieces in that order to realize, oh, this is why there's confusion in the church, division in the mm-hmm. church. Because um, that story, to me, I would have said, um, ended with the Book of Mormon coming to Joseph and us building Zion, and that's the end result. That was as far as I went as a child growing up in a church. We're supposed to build Zion, but that's 
that's not. And so the hope is found in the rest of the story as we had, as we've spoken to already, the hope is found in after we reject it, it going back to the house of Israel. And that's exciting because that's God working. And when we see that happen, we see God working and we still have a part in a blessing and, and are still loved by God as much as any creator. But, but he's fulfilling his work, carrying out his plan, the prophetic ship that we always said is sailing and it's going to stay on course according to his prophecies. So when you see him doing things, get excited, right? When you see these things happening. And right now there's so much to be excited about. You see his work going forth and we haven't even for all intents and purposes been a part of it, but he's still fulfilling his prophecy. To me, that brings hope, not sadness. Yes. Because it shows he's mighty to save. Exactly. He's mighty to fulfill his words. They won't return to him void. Yeah, he he's not thwarted by the things no. that have happened, or it's all been part of the story. And this is this is actually the beautiful part of the Book of Mormon that brings comfort, really, to me is realizing he's been telling us since the beginning how the end was going to play out, and we've been so just kind of wrapped up in other things that we haven't even seen this message. I mean, the rest of this chapter, Second Nephi twelve, has some profound. Uh, insights as well. If you're in the LDS, it, it's in 2 Nephi 30, but he he states how our covenants work. In, in verse 77, as many as the Gentiles as will repent are the covenant people of the Lord, and as many of the Jews as will not repent shall be cast off. So right there, God says, hey, my covenant is all about your change of heart. Yeah, right? repenting. That, yeah. So Cho- choosing me, yeah. That's the, that's the primary... Uh, doctrinal message, if you will, to us of the Book of Mormon is that it's all about your change of heart. If your heart changes, it doesn't matter if you're born into Judah or born as a Gentile or whatever. You've got a covenant with God, right? That is a beautiful, beautiful promise. And then he says, so, hey, if you are of the lineage of Israel and you don't repent, you're cast out. So he only covenants with those who repent and believe on his son, which is the Holy One of Israel. That's verse 78. There it is, the the one who is the Holy One of Israel, God. But he, he continues to share, in, and he says, Nephi writes this, he says, I would prophesy some more concerning the Jews and the Gentiles. After this book, which I have spoken, shall come forth and be written unto the Gentiles. So he's talking about the very plates that they were tap, tap, tapping out. He said, and sealed up again to the Lord. He said, There'll be many that believe, and they will carry them forth unto the remnant of our seed. So Nephi sees this time when the word goes back to his people. We call them different things. We call them Lamanites. Uh, we call them uh, Native Americans. We might call them Central Americans. We 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 just assume it's the indigenous people to the Americas. Mm-hmm. Okay, House um, of jo- or the tribe of Joseph, tribe of Joseph, the remnant of Joseph, or scattered remnant people. There's a lot of different names, but sometimes ne- Jews yep. are just incorporated into that. Right, right. But specifically, Nephi uses this term, so we know that he's talking about something that had to do with his lineage. Now, this is where lineage or who your parents were that does make a difference. Salvation, the plan of salvation is offered to anyone who will come to the Lord with with a changed heart. But the way these covenants are played out are played out through certain people because of the promises made to the forefathers. So he uses this term, remnant of our seed. Okay, the remnant, the the descendants of, of our lineage, right? Our genealogy, so to speak. In verse 81, he says, then shall the remnant of our seed know concerning us, how we came out of Jerusalem. We are descendants of the Jews, and the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be declared among them. So, so he's prophesying that his very own people are going to know their lineage, who they were, they were Israelites, displaced, and about Jesus. And so they'll come to the knowledge of their forefathers and that the, their forefathers knew about Christ. That is going to be life-changing for them in, in a day to come. And it says, they will rejoice, for they shall know that it is a blessing unto them from the hand of God. And it says, hey, the, the scales of darkness begin to fall from their eyes, and they, they become spiritually enlightened. But, but so he speaks first to his descendants. Then Nephi shifts, and he writes about the Jews. And he says, and, this is verse 85, it shall come to pass that the Jews which are scattered 
also shall begin to believe in Christ. And this is this is happening right now, even without the Book of Mormon. But I know the Book of Mormon is going to be a key in, in the catalyst and make this take off. They shall begin to gather on the face of the land, and as many as believe in Christ shall also become a delightsome people. And that's a spiritual description, not a, not a physical description. So it will come to pass then, in verse 87, that the work of the Lord— I'm going to read it verbatim. Yeah. And it shall come to pass that the Lord God shall commence his work among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. And for those of you that— are like me and for a long time growing up didn't know even what the word commence, especially younger people, to begin. Exactly. So at this time, when the word has gone back to the remnant of Nephi's seeds, his, his people, wherever they're at, and the Jews, when they come to Jesus Christ, God's saying, da something is going to start now, and it's mm-hmm. big, and it's commencing, that the Lord shall commence among not just people in Jackson County, he says, his work among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. Now, that's big. That's really huge. That this is the promise. This is one of the things the Book of Mormon teaches is that it's not, and it's not just to teach the world that somehow these this little group of people, Enclave and Jackson County, were right. No, it's it's to teach that Jesus was right and that they come to him. We, we act like they were going to come and flow unto us somehow. These Gentiles who argue about little things about who can have communion and who can't and all this stuff. Well, his his purpose says this. In that day, when this gospel finally goes back to those people, they're going to hold it up to be a standard. They're going to grab these words. They're not going to be confused by our misgivings about doctrine. They're going to hold this up. They're going to hold him up. And it says this, to bring about the restoration of his people on the earth, right? But among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. That's what's going to happen from this word. Right. And his people mean those who are willing to repent. Exactly. All nations, kindreds, tongues of people. We are all his people. We're all his children. We're all his creation. But to spiritually be his children, we have to repent and be born again by the Spirit and choose choose him as our Father, as our Heavenly Father, as our Creator. Choose his ways. So, yeah, to go forth into all the world. Yeah. Whosoever will come to him, they have that opportunity. And to know him as he is and to know who he is, truth. And you know, there's a beautiful description. And again, sometimes you hear these words, you see these things and you skip over because you think I've seen it. But just if you let these words play on the imagination of your mind for a minute, because after it says to bring about the restoration of his people on the earth, it says, and with righteousness shall the Lord God judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. You know, all of a sudden, the people who are the poor, the outcast, the downtrodden, the spiritually overwhelmed, the the forgotten, the the hurting people, no, he's he's coming for them. He's coming for you. He's coming for us to to make those things right. He's the one who of Scripture in Revelation says, and God Himself will wipe the tears from our faces, right? When this, when this, his kingdom is on earth, this is what he wants to do. He, he wants to make the wrong things in your life right. He, he wants to take the people who are hurting and say, "You're not going to hurt anymore." Right? This is what his purpose is. He's, he, he came to help. He came to save, not to hurt and not to cast us out. I used to think when I heard those scriptures and and listened to the Sermon on the Mount that. It's like, well, so God loves the poor more than he may love other people. And, like, if I'm not in rags and, and living on the street corner, then God doesn't love me as much as others. But I, the key is every single one of us, as we come to Christ and as we begin to change, part of that change is learning that each one of us is poor, each one of us is a beggar, and each one of us has absolutely nothing to give him other than our heart. And and as we become poor, poor in spirit, meek, as we become to realize that I can't make anything out of myself, even though I try every day to make myself something to impress God, um, as I learn that I am a beggar in need of a Savior, I become that person, then I am blessed. So Amen. the more we learn 
how much of a beggar, how poor we are, how um, needful we are, no matter how much dollar bills are in our wallet, but how we actually become that way. We are blessed then, and he's able to bless us. So, Yes, yes. You know, this this justice and righteousness that he brings, also the prophecy says there will be a, a great division that he will destroy wicked wickedness, um, it says, even so by fire. And and so, uh, you know, back to our, our friend who was saying, hey, there's going to be physical fire. Well, yeah, there's there's going to be fire, but I'm not even going there. The point isn't whether it's a physical fire or a spiritual fire. The point is that he is going to make things so good for the people that want him and for the people who openly reject him. You know, there will be suffering. But the point is that those people who are hurting now and hurting in Christ, um, even if you're listening right now, to know that your Savior is coming. He's not forgotten you. He's not forgotten us. He is trying to restore us to him and and, and not punish you for for the, the fact that, hey, we live in a fallen world and, and this is a hard life. Um, he knows that, but he's got a solution, and that the solution is that he comes back and he reigns. That word restore... We t- we've talked about it before, and, and it's one where we try again to make an analogy in this world uh, to fit our understanding. But but when he's talking about restoring all people to him, we are created for, just as a fish is created to live in water, here I am using an analogy, we are created for an environment that we are not in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you take a fish out of a... Out of an aquarium, it can flop around on the ground for a while and survive, but that's not the environment it was created for. Mm. And even though we have a different time scale, really, you and I are not created to live apart from fellowship with God right. in eternity. Right. We are in time for, for a period. But when he talks about restoring all people to him, it's like coming back to that environment we were created for. And we we really do a good job of making ourselves feel at home in this environment. Yeah. But, um, and, and it, it's easy to do and we can do that, but eventually you're going to run out of that. Like the fish runs out of oxygen and everything and ends up dying. You'll flop around and eventually end up dying separated forever from God. So we need to get back to the environment we were created for. And that's, that's uh, sitting and eating of the fruit of the tree. It's always back to that same picture that's just been so beautiful the Lord gave us. It's sitting under that tree, partaking of that white fruit that is, what is it, white above white, pure above pure, sweet above sweet. That's what we were created for, that environment, and that is partaking of the pure love of God, and it fills our soul. can never say it too many times. We don't hunger or thirst for anything when that is truly what we desire. Amen. Brother, you got anything else? No, I think we'll just pick it up the next time. We'll just continue our conversation. We're just getting started on what does the Book of Mormon teach, and we're going we're gonna to come back to this, I'm sure, several more times. Okay. So this show will probably – I always have to figure out, well, what are we going to call this? So this was the preface. This is setting the scene for what does the Book of Mormon teach and why is it important, and kind of talked about the standard and what that means. I, I've enjoyed this, Corey. I didn't know where we were going to go today, but thank you. Thank you for uh, uh, bringing out these wonderful points. You know what? I never get tired of hearing you sit across the table from me and read the Word of God uh, from the Book of Mormon. It's just like I could just sit here and just let you uh, read all day to me. Why don't we do that? <laughs> I've got you? another six hours, brother. <laughs> let me get you some some good water. We'll keep, keep that voice fresh and just keep going because there is just – Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it, we can talk what we want to talk, right, and make our points. Yeah, and everything. but when but we open the word, when oh you gosh. just start. Andrew Peterson said one time, he said, "You know, I've said a lot of things on stage, a lot of things through the years where I thought was great wisdom at the time, and I've looked back on some of those concerts and thought, oh, I had so little understanding at the time, and what was I doing?" He goes, "But one thing I never grew tired of, and have never regretted, and that's talking about uh, Jesus." And just pointing ourselves to him and reading his word. So that's you know, that's what brings me yeah. great joy is to hear that word being read um, that mm-hmm. the Lord's given for his purpose. Well, he is our rock, and he is the one to build our lives upon. So can't wait till next time. Thank you for hosting us, Mike, and we look forward to the next time we can open the word of God together.
I look forward to it too. Uh, new series, What Does the Book of Mormon Teach? Until next time, remember, Corey. We are all just walking each other home. Be merciful, be good, be gracious to each other, loving. God bless.